my name is Ricky Day, and this is Nothing to Lose But Yourself. What's going on, everybody? This is Ricky Day, and thank you again for tuning in to the podcast, Nothing to Lose But Yourself, where we do everything we can to make this world a little bit better place, one conversation at a time. Before we dive in, I want to remind you to follow us on social media. That's Nothing to Lose But Yourself on Instagram and on Twitter. If you want to follow me, it's Ricky Day, R-I-C-K-Y-D-A-Y on Instagram and on Twitter as well. Uh, In addition to hosting and producing this podcast with Matthew Guthrie, my producer. I am also a uh, filmmaker and a photographer, and so you can check out some of the work and, and, and my goings on on those social media feeds as well. Well, today's episode is an important one, an exciting one, an informative one, and I want to dive right into it. So let's talk about it, shall we? Uh, My guest today on the podcast is an amazing woman, an amazing professional. Her name is Dr. Lena Green. Dr. Green is a clinical psychologist. She's a social worker. She's an adjunct professor, and she's the executive director of Hope Center Harlem. Hope Center Harlem, uh, which is, by the way, is short for Healing on Purpose and Evolving, is the manifestation of Senior Pastor Michael A. Walren Jr. of First Corinthian Baptist Church. Uh, it's a manifestation of his vision to effectively support the vast mental health needs of the parishioners of the church and the Harlem community at large. In our wide-ranging conversation today, Dr. Green, who is the star of today, she and I are going to talk about her life and career and her journey into what she does here for a living. But most importantly, we're going to break down the myths and the stigmas around mental health and mental well-being and therapy in communities of color as well as the mainstream community. In addition to that, we are going to most importantly discuss some of the things that we can all do to proactively protect our mental health as well as seek treatment if and when we have issues and concerns. She's going to talk to us about the professionals that are available to help you and what therapy looks like and feels like. Now, despite this introduction, this is not a negative conversation. It's not a downtrodden kind of conversation. This is actually an uplifting conversation designed to inform and to give us all hope and access to the tools necessary to start our journey to wholeness and healing. So without further ado, I want you to sit back, relax, grab that cup of coffee, your glass of wine, your glass of water, your herbal refreshment, whatever it is that you need to do do that. If you're driving, please focus on the road, but just listen to us as you go on your journey and enjoy my conversation with the amazing, the wonderful, the talented, and the professionally experienced Dr. Lena L. Green. This is a good one. Let's dive in. Dr. Lena L. Green is a clinical social worker, a psychotherapist, and fatherhood practitioner. Uh, her, in her more than 20 years of direct practice and management experience as a clinician, professor, and administrator, uh, Dr. Green has had a tremendous impact on countless New Yorkers. She's, a, she's skilled in various areas of mental health, program planning, development, clinical supervision, and building strategic partnerships. Uh, Dr. Green holds both a doctorate and master's degree in social work from NYU, a BA in psychology from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and a postmaster's certificates in 
advanced clinical practice from Hunter College and the treatment of alcohol and drug related clients from NYU. Dr. Green is an active member of the Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Inc. and currently serves as the executive director of the Hope Center Harlem. The Hope Healing on Purpose and Evolving Center is the manifestation of Senior Pastor Michael A. Walron of FCBC's vision to effectively support the vast mental health needs of the parishioners of both First Corinthian Baptist Church and, of course, of the Harlem community at large. Uh, The Hope Center seeks to minimize the stigma around communities of color when seeking mental health services, and it prides itself on having licensed clinicians who utilize evidence-based therapeutic practices to support a variety of daily living challenges, including depression, trauma, sexual abuse, and bereavement. So without further ado, I want to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lena L. Green. Dr. Green, how are you? I am great. I am fantastic. I am thrilled to be here talking to you and delighted for this opportunity. So and hope to, you know, share something and share my background, my information, um, the things that I do, my purpose, uh, my hopes, and um, in the hopes that it will, you know, support someone. It absolutely will. And we thank you for joining us. Um, I'm grateful that you could make it today. I know you are busy. Because you guys, your industry is stressed right now. All of us need some help, myself included. So I'm glad you can make time to uh, to be here with us today. And I really, really do appreciate it. Uh, you know, I always like to start these conversations by um, sharing a little bit of the background of the person who I'm talking to. So people get to know a little bit about you. Who are you? Where are you from? And tell me a little bit about your early stages in this path to being who you are today and, and getting into psychology and social work. But where are you from? first. Who's Dr. Lena L. Green? Ah, well, Dr. Lena L. Green is a Harlem girl, uh, born and raised in Harlem, uh, went away to school, the University of Massachusetts, uh, decided to come back home because Harlem is home and Harlem is where the heart is, Mm -hmm. um, and continue my work here and be dedicated to the community um, here, just, you know, in the surrounding um, area, but also in the New York City area at large. Um, And, you know, there have been many opportunities to go elsewhere, whether it's for work, um, professional advancements or just to venture out and do other things. And so I've, I'm committed to continuing to be in Harlem and continuing to do the work um, with my community. So we, we are grateful for you. Tell me a little bit about family from a big family, small family. I am from a big family. Uh, we are a large clan, both on my maternal side and my paternal side. Um, we are very close knit. Uh, my grandmother, God bless her, had five children, four of which she's already buried. Um, and so that makes us even closer, even tighter. Um, and so we enjoy loving on one another, hanging out, having fun. Um, and we all live in close proximity. And so sometimes that's both a gift and a little stressful <laughs> because people think that they have access to you in ways that, you know, aren't, al- that aren't always, you know, um, appropriate per se. Um, but I do enjoy it and I do enjoy being able to be close to my nieces and nephews and close to my siblings. Yeah, that's great. I um, moved here about 22 years ago from California. And so my family's in California, they're in Missouri, they're in Arkansas, and I do miss my nieces and nephews and watching people grow up and such. But uh, 
the G-O-D called me to be on the East Coast, and, and that's where I am. And, and speaking of God, you are a woman of faith. We happen to be uh, members of the same church, First Corinthian Baptist Church in New York, affectionately known as FCBC. Um, you know, uh, as a woman of faith, why social work? That's an obvious one, I think. But still, I want to know why from your point of view. And then also why psych- psychology, why therapy, why the clinical side of things? Explain kind of how you got to this space and what that journey looked like for you. Yeah, so I feel like social work actually chose me. It's, I have an interesting story about how I even got into social work. Um, but I'll start a little farther back. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was one of those kids who knew early on that they wanted to be a therapist, believe it or not. Um, really? You know, Yeah. So growing up in the 80s in Harlem and in the crack era and, you know, seeing some of the challenges of folks around me, um, seeing the grief and loss in my own family, I said, you know what, I really want to be able to be a mental health clinician. I want to be a therapist. Um, So when I got to the University of Massachusetts, I was very clear that I wanted to be on that path. And so I majored in psychology Mm -hmm. um, and I had a great experience there. Um, And then when I got out of school, I went to go volunteer at this place called the Upper Manhattan Mental Health Center. So it's a mental health clinic up on 145th Street in Amsterdam. Got it. And I just knew everyone in there was a psychologist. It was, you know, it was great. I was having a fantastic time. And so I said, you know, I'm going to go to graduate school and I'm going to do this uh, mental health thing and I'm going to, you know, move forward in it. And so I remember talking to, you know, they give me some responsibility. So um, I was Coding a coding a group, mm-hmm. you know, supporting some of the youth initiatives, and so I remember asking during a team meeting, right? And now I had been there for like almost a year volunteering, mm-hmm. uh, like once or twice a week in, in the evenings after getting off of work. And I remember saying to them, you know, I'm going to be just like all of you and get my degree in psychology. And so they all started laughing, and I was like, "What is so funny?" And they were like, "We're all social workers," <laughs> and I was like, "What?" <laughs> and they were like, you've been here for an entire year. Like you didn't know that you were also, I was like, no, I thought you all were psychologists. And so th- at that point I started to learn some of the differences between the professions. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out there was like a team of like 12 social workers or so. They had one psychiatrist on staff and one psychologist on staff. And I thought, well, all of this stuff, right. I'm definitely going to be a social worker because they were so incredible. The things that they were doing, they were, you know, they had various um, uh, responsibilities, but the kind of work that I saw them doing and the kinds of ways in which they were helping people, um, both concretely and emotionally, just really spoke to me. Mm -hmm. And it was at that point that I decided, yes, social work is for me. Um, And so then I applied to NYU, literally on the same day that the application was due, I literally ran to NYU downtown on the train hand delivered my application to admissions and they called me like less than a month later and said, congratulations, you're accepted. Wow. <laughs> well, we thank God for it and so. thank God for you. You know, it's interesting. I shot a photographer, as you know, among other things, and I shot the uh, graduation of the Columbia School of Social Work uh, last oh. weekend. And really? yeah, and it was a fascinating and emotional and impactful ceremony the mm-hmm. the speeches the the understanding the work that they do and god knows in this world that we're living in right now it's more critical than ever um it's really important work and you know before then my only real reference was 
you know, hearing my mom, you know, my mom was a single parent uh, and we started out on, on welfare and some of those things. And so hearing my mom and her girlfriend's stories about their social worker and them coming to the house and all the crap they do. And, you know, it, that was my context for social work. And it wasn't necessarily a positive one. Um, even Claudine influenced um, yes. how I see social work and social workers. Uh, Diane Carroll and James Earl Jones, what a great movie. Um, yeah. And so it wasn't until recently that I understood the power of the work that you guys do as social workers and, and how important it is and, and how rewarding it actually is. And of course, how stressful uh, I'm sure it is. Yeah. So I have an interesting point about that. So thank you for bringing that up. So that movie, Claudine, I actually use as a teaching moment um, with my students to talk about the ways in which our profession has not just only been stereotyped, right? but also um, misleading with regard to the work that we do and the impact that we have on the community. Mm -hmm. um, but also talking about the policies and the ways in which policies have impacted our work and the, the way that we um, are in the community. But, um, you know, social workers are the primary mental health providers in this country, right? And, and so most people actually don't know that. They think it's another profession, but it's actually not. Um, so across the country, social workers are number one. Um, number two comes in at psychology and number three comes in comes in at psychiatry. And then there are other mental health clinicians uh, and other mental health degrees that have started to become popular. Wow. Um, so I thought it was important to mention that because a lot of times, especially growing up, um, many of us have a notion that, oh, the social worker is the one that comes to take away the kids. Yeah. Right? Um, and they've been removing and doing things or they just do concrete services or they're discharge planners or something like that. But no, they are the number one providers of mental health in this country. And that is fascinating. And I think that alone is a soundbite that's going to be really impactful for people because most people don't know that. Um, to that end, though, I, I, I presume, but I really want to know in the context of you sharing that, what, you know, that degree process, what that area of study looks like for social workers, if indeed they are serving as the number one provider of mental health services. Is there a lot of psychology and, and, and training within the programs, I presume, that prepare you guys for that? Or how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of crossover between um, uh, areas of mental health, particularly that of psychology and, and social work and also psychiatry, too. Right. Um, but I think one of the things that distinguishes uh, social workers so profoundly is that we really look at the, the whole person. Right. So we're looking at the needs that they have um, across the spectrum of their lives. We're looking at their families in totality, mm -hmm. We're looking at the ways in which poverty has impacted their lives. We're looking at the ways in which racism um, and oppression have impacted their lives. We're looking at the policies that we as clinicians and also as macro level, what we call uh, macro level, looking at policies and issues like that um, and global issues have impacted the ways in which we're able to provide daily services. Right. And so it begs the question, you know, sometimes and I say this to my students all the time uh, that, you know, we have to look at ourselves as 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 clinicians, um, as policymakers, as administrators mm -hmm. to figure out, you know, are we asking people to, to keep up on this, you know, on this hamster wheel? Um, and are we looking at the, the deficits in our lives as a, as a community and a global and a public health issue? Or are we personalizing this issue for folks, right? And it's a little bit of both, right? Yeah. Uh, because there's, there, there are global things um, and communal things that impact our, our mental health and well-being. Um, but then there are also some individual things and choices that happen to us on a very micro level that impact our lives. So, Yeah, that's important. And, you know, when you hear it described the way that you describe it, um, 
I'm far more comfortable than I was originally when you made the statement. I'm far more comfortable with social workers really being the primary mental health caregivers because you are not just looking at uh, the the disease, the disorder, um, the the what person's going through, but you're understanding and looking at the causality behind that, what's going on in and around their lives that's brought them to that space and and, and quite often perpetuates them staying in that space. Uh, that that's really important. I mean that alone made this conversation worthwhile. So thank you so much for for sharing that. And, and to that end, let's just call, take that to completion. Can you help people kind of understand the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist and, and what you guys provide? Okay, yes. I'm going to get on a soapbox just a little bit, if you'll allow me Absolutely. To. This is your platform today. That's why you're here. It literally, I'm the host and all that, but this is the guest's okay. platform. I want you guys to share all the wonderful wisdom and knowledge that you have. Yeah. So I want to make sure I also answer this question very concretely so folks know, but then also talk just a little bit about you know this mental health space for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, so psychiatrists are medical doctors. They are MDs, right? They are physicians. Mm-hmm. Um, and they primarily prescribe medication. Right. So that is particularly their role. So they've gone to medical school, um, just like any other doctor that you would see in primary care or, you know, um, seeing a doctor for, around diabetes or anything like that, they have the they've gone through their training and such. Um, but they focused uh, primarily on mental health and primarily are able to prescribe medication. Um, some psychiatrists will see you for therapy, mm-hmm. uh, but not all. Um, but most of the time, that's their their focus. It's it's pretty. Um, I don't want to say narrow, but in terms of, you know, how we work together. So, you know, across disciplines, mm-hmm. um, usually a psychotherapist will do the majority of the counseling. And then we refer to the psychiatrist for medication management as it relates to you know any mental health challenges that they may, may be dealing with. So right. anything from ADHD to depression and anxiety, that's where we're going to work closely with them and work closely with one another to ensure that our clients are getting what they need. Um, and so my soapbox piece around this a little bit is that, you know, the word psychotherapist um, is uh, slightly misleading, I think, a little bit in that, you know, the, the, the wellness space and folks with varying degrees have started to use this term when, when really it, it has been, you know, primarily social workers um, who've really been categorized as psychotherapists. It comes with many, many significant hours of clinical uh clinical work and clinical practice, as well as supervision. Um, And it takes many, many years to get there, right? Um, And so there have been, you know, other uh, professions who have um, entered the field of mental health, um, some of whom are actually not mental health clinicians. And I'm finding too in, in, in my work with working with folks and having conversations that people are calling themselves, uh, uh, psychotherapists and wellness coaches who actually don't have any degree in mental health at all. So I caution mm-hmm. folks to be quite careful um, and ask specific questions about who they're working with. And, and don't be afraid to ask the person, what is their degree in, right? So we do yeah. have licensed mental health counselors who are absolutely um, categorized as psychotherapists. We also have marriage, uh, licensed marriage and marital and family therapists who also go into that category. But I want folks to feel empowered to ask the question mm-hmm. and ask the person, what is your background? And be clear about that. And that uh, the other the other piece that's important to know is that um, there are only um, a handful of folks in that category who can be categorized as doctors, right? So right. if you're a psychiatrist, you're a doctor. If you're a PhD, uh, you're a doctor. 
Um, and then for in social work, there's PhD and there's DSW, which is a doctor of social welfare. Uh, so those are the folks I want to be really, really clear. So feel free to ask those questions, ask people for their credentials and look them up. Absolutely. Yeah. What are some, you know, are there some key tools that exist that where people can look online or, you know, how can people do that? Cause you know, when you think about it and particularly people of color and, and depending on socioeconomic, uh, uh, status, you're probably already uncomfortable in theory with the notion of seeing a therapist or engaging in mental health care and treatment anyway. And then you probably more than likely are not armed with the resources to understand where can I do my due diligence and my research on this person and make sure um, that I'm being seen by a professional who's trained properly. Cause obviously, I mean, I say obviously, but yet you need training. You need significant training to be engaged Absolutely. in this kind of work or you could do more damage than than good with folks. And that is always the concern that, that folks are here doing more damage than, than good. Um, but one easy place to be able to, t- to do that um, is to go on Psychology Today. Mm-hmm. And anyone who has a profile that's a licensed mental health clinician will be able to be verified through that portal. Um, so that's one super easy way. The other way, which is slightly more complicated, but it's something that you can do. It's through the Office of the Professions. So we're in New York. So often if you just Google um, the Office of the Professions, I know New York State, I'm pretty sure every state has the Office of the Professions, but Mm -hmm. you can put in someone's name and it will tell you if they have a license, what profession they're in. This is across professions. Uh, So if you have a license, you can find out if they have a license the year that they receive their license and if their license is actually active, which is also important. Absolutely. Cause I would imagine there's periodic training and exams you have to take to make sure that you still Absolutely. know your stuff. I mean, Absolutely. I'm depressed now because my general practitioner physician is just like, I only do certain kinds of treatment at this point in my career. I'm 60 yeah. something years old, but I got to go through this exam every 10 years and I just don't want to do it anymore. So I'm retiring <laughs> and I'm so sad that he's retiring, but I totally understand where he's coming from. But I also appreciate that the exams are so rigorous and they want to make sure that people have the right credentials and uh, training to, to be able to engage in care. Thank you so much, Dr. Green, for sharing that. That's really, really important. Uh, I want to pivot a little bit to your role at the the Hope Center. Uh, it's a fascinating and impactful and important place. Again, Hope means uh, stands for healing on purpose and evolving. And our pastor and and, and our friend, uh, Reverend Michael A. Warren Jr., um, it was his dream to to build the Hope Center. And I'm just wondering if you could share some insight into how this how the Hope Center came into existence and then why it exists, so people kind of understand where it sits in this great community that we live in called Harlem. Yeah, so great sort of segue into to me sharing all about the Hope Center. Um, so certainly Pastor Mike's passion around mental health and making sure that our community, and when I say our community, particularly the Black community, and I would say as we live in Harlem and the surrounding community, it's a majority Black and Hispanic, a Black and Latino, mm-hmm. um, have access to care. And so it started with ensuring that um, the, the congregation, the parishioners of the church had access to, to mental health care. Um, and so... There are two things that were significant about that. One, um, Pastor Mike had uh, a clear vision around sharing his own history Mm. around mental health, his own challenges, his own needs, and his own ability to engage in mental health care with a therapist, um, share his own journey and his own story around mental health and some of the medical challenges that he had that has impacted his ability to be well. Um, 
his own thoughts and 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 um, encounters with suicide as well. So I appreciate that um, from him, but also encouraging our faith leaders across the board um, to support. Uh, mental health, right, in various ways. And so I appreciate that all of our faith leaders are engaged in supporting the, the mental health and wellness and, and well-being of uh, the parishioners and the surrounding community. And so we started with one mental health clinician in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, I always like to shout her, I, shout her out. So shout out to Joyce Johnson because yes. Joyce is doing this work for many years solo in the church. Um, and then we, when uh, we decided, or pastor decided, that it was time to have a, a standalone clinic. Um, that came about for two reasons. One, the need was incredibly great. Um, so many, many folks were coming in for services, and sort of just, you know, she couldn't meet the need on her own. Right? Mm-hmm. Imagine this is pre-pandemic. Yeah, poor Sister then- Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go take her lunch every job. day. <laughs> Right. Um, but then the stigma. Right. So the stigma of like having, you know, we can talk a little bit more about stigma, but the stigma around, you know, mental health in general, but more importantly, around other people knowing that you were coming into the church to see the therapist. Yeah. Right? And so it was important to be able to have a standalone clinic where folks could go have some privacy, feel like their information was sort of confidential without having to worry about running into anyone else or someone else knowing that they were specifically there to see the therapist. Mm-hmm. And so the Hope Center was born five years ago. We celebrated five years in December, and we've been serving the community ever since. And so that that small vision of having um, a mental health clinician inside of the church has blossomed into a standalone clinic where we're seeing over 150 plus people individually for counseling um, on an annual basis, and then being able to provide services to them also um, with some of our group-based um, opportunities, as well as well as our wellness, or what I call call our forward-facing uh, programs that are available to all the community. That's wonderful, and everything's free of charge. That's the best part. so it's free of charge and anyone receiving services at the hope center gets free free sessions 10 free sessions uh for mental health and if they're in need of more uh we have ways to bridge them to additional services to care um and so we've been providing services uh for the past five years and happy to announce that uh this summer as we approach the fall we're going to be adding two psychiatrists to our team. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Those are medical doctors who can prescribe medicine for those of you who need it. Not because, you know, you heard that your girlfriend's got Xanax and you want to take it. No, these are people that really, yeah. really uh, need need the, the help and, and the care. No, it's fascinating and it's really important. And I'm so proud of Pastor Mike and grateful to Pastor Mike for being so vulnerable, sharing his story and, and opening this up. Uh, because so often in faith, um, you know, there's this temptation to want to pray everything away uh, and, and not seek the kind of care that you need. You know, if you have cancer, sure, we have faith and, and we pray, but you also tend to go to your doctor, you go to the oncologist, you get treatment, you do chemo, you do what needs to be done. Uh, but in the mental health space in black and Latino uh, communities, there's been a lot of myths around mental health. Uh, oh, you just, you know, you you possess, you need this, you need that. Um 
as opposed to really treating it as uh, what it is uh, quite often. It's illness that needs uh, treatment and needs guidance. Uh, And there's other stigmas around mental health care. I'm, you know, I'm curious, Dr. Green, uh, what are some of the, you know, the stigmas that you just top of mind, the big ones that uh, exist and how is the Hope Center helping to address them by removing stigma and and, and helping and addressing the mental health uh, needs of the community? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that stigma piece is 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 heavy, especially around um, you know this notion of like cr- being crazy. Um, you know, I'm not that pushing up against that notion, right? And I think that with language, um, and I'll get in, I'll gonna circle around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why language is so important, right? And we use language so casually sometimes as we as it relates to mental health, right? So we say things like the weather is bipolar, right? right? So even small things like that reinforce language and stigma that make it challenging for people to feel like. Um, they want to go and seek help, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we also know that historical trauma and historical mistreatment um, for communities of color has also impacted um, our beliefs around stigma that we we go and that we're not really helped in the ways in which we need the help, right? right? Um, there's also this this notion that um, uh, uh, psychological openness, right? So we tend to sort of downplay the things that we're feeling emotionally um, and not be as open and transparent around the things that we need. So those are some of the ways in which, you know, stigma sort of gets in the way. And then, you know, some of the other things that that we um, that I think contribute to, um, you know, not being able to move forward with getting services. And that is, you know, lack of access to care, lack of education around um, mental illness and, and recovery and treatment, those kinds of things and knowledge and education about what it means. Right. So understanding the facts around and mental mental health challenges and how that impacts you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so here at the Hope Center, you know, what's so important for us is that we are very, very careful about language, right? And so we try to use language that is not condemning, that is not stigmatizing. And so we don't really focus on words like mental illness or, you know, uh, uh, anything that feels sort of uncomfortable in our community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or communities of color. And so we try to focus more on wellness. So for example, if, you know, many times, you go to go to other organizations and you're referred to as a patient right. Right? or as a client. Well, here at the Hope Center, we refer to you as an innovator, right? Uh, because we are partnering on your wellness journey. So even the word, even the term wellness journey, you might go somewhere else and they may say it's a treatment plan mm-hmm. for you. Um, and so then we also think about the ways in which we incorporate some of the other things, um, you know, even when you walk into the space, right, the space is welcoming. There's not things that focus on sort of depression or any of those things. We, we focus on other things like transparency and worthiness and wellness and being hopeful. That's powerful, Dr. Green. That, that's a powerful. And I really want to I want to pause there for a moment and really let that kind of sit just sit in the space for people because you're not using colorful language to be catchy or trendy. You're really using language in the way that language can be and is always being used. People don't understand the power of the word. Literally, the first thing that existed was the word. God spoke a thing and the thing happened. We speak a thing or think a thing and that thing becomes real in our life. And so this is not just catchphrases uh, and things to make people feel warm and fuzzy. This is this has real world ramifications and the degree of thought, the degree of sensitivity that you guys express by doing this 
I think is profound. And I just really wanted to call that out and, and congratulate and support you guys in that because it's really, really important. Uh, and so thank you for that. For that, I'm sorry, but go ahead and continue. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was just going to add to that, that we, we sort of try to do that in every sense of the form, every, every sense of the word, right? So mm-hmm. we focus on healing in various ways, um, right? Because you can do that in, 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 um, in ways that are flexible, right? In ways that feel like they're connected to the culture in which you come from. Um, So, for example, we had a mental health focused men's only event and it was called In the Den and we're going to be doing part two. Right. But it was basically an opportunity to talk to Pastor Mike, to talk to Dr. Hankerson, which is our resident psychiatrist, um, and to talk to our other psychologist who's who's um, a part of our team, Dr. Henry Willis, and engage in how do you manage stress? Right. We didn't call it something else. We called it In the Den. It's a space and an opportunity for men to just gather and talk about how do they manage and deal with stress. Yeah. And so those, those are some of the things that we're doing. We also do things um, like offer uh, groups that we think are attractive and important to certain communities. So we had a group called the Pride Room that was um, specifically geared to the LGBTQ plus community. We had a wellness for writing or writing for a therapeutic writing group mm-hmm. um, that folks could come in and they, they could sort of talk about, you know, how to use writing as an outlet for stress. So we try to be creative in those ways, in addition to doing some of the other traditional things like counseling or meditation or yoga. Right? So it's really thinking about all the ways in which wellness can be used to, to heal. Yeah, absolutely. Innovative stuff. Uh, and I'm hoping that this model or some form of it can get exported across the country and, and in faith communities, because faith communities and communities of color, black and Latino, uh, need this more than ever. Uh, and, you know, speaking about faith, you know, the church, and I wrote this down because I didn't want to misstate this. I feel this deeply and I'm a man of uh, God and a man of cloth uh, with my certificate in ministry and about to start my master's. But, you know, got to call things what they are. So, you know, the church, the black church in particular has been central, you know, to our progress and our survival in this often brutal experience of being black in America or black and Latino in America or in the Western world in general. Right. Uh, But yet at the same time, the church has often kind of contributed to the stress and the oppression of, of people in many ways from homophobia and transphobia to sex shaming women who have babies out of wedlock as if a man wasn't involved. Uh, the notion of praying things away instead of seeking mental health treatment. And I'm just interested, you know, it's so important that the health, Hope Center sits as a bridge between faith and mental health care, right? We have this stigma in the community. People of color tend to be kind of weary of the medical profession in general, Um, And so they trust uh, their pastors. They trust their church more than they trust uh, professionals. But at the same time, they need access to professionals. So it's kind of profoundly brilliant to me that the Hope Center helps to bridge the gap between faith uh, and mental health uh, and helps to destigmatize some of these things. Um, How is that working in in the real world for you guys? How are, um, you know, people coming to the table and and accessing your services and are that you're seeing challenges with people holding on to what faith says about their mental health versus what professionals say? Are people coming in that are wounded by the church and there's kind of suspect of a church based mental health clinic helping them? How is that kind of playing out in the real world? Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, my tagline, um, and anyone, I will say to any and everyone who will listen, is prayer and therapy. Prayer and therapy, mm-hmm. that's my tagline, right? Because 
it's important to know that they go hand in hand, right? And if we say that, you know, God has gifted us and endowed us with talents, right? That doesn't exclude those of us in the mental health profession, right? right? We are also called to this work. We're also um, deeply touched by this work. And we also can think about how this is biblically aligned with the teachings of Jesus, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so that's important to know. Um, And the church has also been a safe haven, but also wounded folks as well, right? Um, And so that's one of the things that we also look at here, church hurt, um, people who have had traumatic experiences um, by those in church, right? We know um, the Catholic church has been riddled um, with all kinds of things as it relates to sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. right? So we want to make sure that we're addressing all of those things. Um, And so when we look at uh, the church and its ability to be able to provide services, it's been a safe haven. It's been the go-to place for people to to receive all kinds of services, right? And so we have to ask ourselves, why not mental health? Why has has that been the thing that we've neglected, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Knowing all the things that we've endured as a community collectively, right? That pain, that trauma, um, you know, understanding the impact of slavery and all of those things for many, many years and many, many generations, right? Also grief, right? Um, It's the first place that we go to seek help and seek treatment. And so this is really just part of the wraparound services that are inclusive as we think about care and support. Um, And I think that First Corinthian has done a fantastic job at being able to do that. Um, So we are a trusted source. We are a trusted, trusted, um, uh, you know, vehicle mm-hmm. to be able to do this um, but we also want to be able to do that responsibly which is why we are licensed clinical professionals right. that are here in this space um, we're also a teaching space as well um, so for those who, who don't know and I don't know if you had a chance to mention this but um, I'm also a professor at both NYU and Columbia um, and I'm, at, I'm adjunct faculty there but we also have um, the Hope Center which is a field placement which means that we train graduate level students about how to do this work Um, And you don't have to be a person of faith in order to be able to come here, but you do have to understand how faith impacts mental health and give people an opportunity to talk about how their faith has impacted their ability to be well. Right. So you can pray with folks and you can still do the teaching. Right. I um, I, I worked with an innovator most recently. um, And one of the things the innovator said to me after um, at the conclusion of our session together was that, oh, this was less less churchy than I thought it was going to be. Um, and so I giggled and I laughed and I said, well, tell me a little, you know, it was the end of our session, but I was curious. I said, well, tell me a little bit more about what that means. Right. And so they proceeded to share that, um, because we were connected to a church that it was going to be a lot more like the Bible says this. Right. And so I was grateful that she had a positive experience, um, but was able to, to ask the questions, but also to be pleasantly surprised about what this walk actually means. Right. That you can be connected to a house of worship. You can be connected to a faith based clinician that you can be connected to a clinician who is also a Christian, but who is not going to sort of browbeat you with all these things about the Bible. But we're just here to talk about how to support you through this wellness journey. Yeah, I I, I get it. And I think she may have possibly <clears throat> I don't know her story or their story, uh, but they also may have been thinking about this possibly being pastoral care and counseling, which I'm personally trained in. And but it's a mm-hmm. it's a similar and related thing, but it's not the same. Uh, it's it's mm-hmm. it is using the Holy Spirit to help people kind of look at problems from a different point of view and and see what is rising in their spirit and what the spirit may be showing them. Uh, but certainly we're not clinicians when we're doing that. And so that's the big difference 
us here that you are clinicians that in many cases happen to be people of faith, uh, but you're the clinicians first and foremost. And so that can help people to kind of move past that, um, that expectation. Have you found that men and women are equally open uh, to the idea of seeking assistance in their mental health uh, journey, or is there a clear divide? Well, um, I'm going to say that they're equally open to getting assistance, right? But for someone who has worked with men for Mm -hmm. quite a while, um, one of my specializations is working with fathers, Black and Latino fathers, um, specifically around mental health. I can tell you that oftentimes, you know, there are some challenges and some differences in the ways in which um, getting services or help-seeking behavior, which is what I like to call it, Mm -hmm. is vastly significant, right? Um, so for men, there's always this tough exterior that I can sort of do it on my own and I can get through it on my own and I can make it, you know, and push through. Right. Yeah. Um, and that I'm impervious and I'm tough and that nothing's going to break me down. Um, and, and it's challenging. Right. Because that's also part of part of the stigma that men should not be seeking help, that men should be strong and tough. Right. Yeah. And get through anything. So that's one of the things that sort of gets in the way. Um, but I think it's important um, to do some teaching around that um to push back on their notions of like what does what does help if you are seeking help what does that actually mean about you Mm -hmm. and open up that conversation about um you know whether that's some emotional challenges whether that's how they think that other people will see them often it's about how they perceive themselves and getting underneath what some you know what's implicit um and underneath all the statements that they're making um, the other thing, too, is that, you know, women have oftentimes have um, stronger social support circles mm-hmm. that encourage them to get support. And I think that's one of the main differences between, you know, uh, men and women with regard to, to seeking help. Um, so, you know, we want to make sure that we're spreading the message out there to the brothers that it's okay to get help. It's okay to get services. And you don't have to be like in dire need. Oftentimes people think that it's like this really huge, terrible thing. Life has to be crumbling down and you're all the way down to the ground in order for you to get help. And it's like, no, right. It could be that, Hey, there's a transition in my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this thing is particularly stressful. Um, I'm having some difficulty figuring out where I should be going on the next path. Those are also great reasons to be able to seek out therapy and seek out counseling. Um, to get some good guidance and support support around your decisions or thinking about maybe, you know, you perhaps there are things that keep happening to you, you know, what we like to call repetition compulsion, right? So there's right. things that continue to happen to you. And you're like, I'm not really sure why I find myself in the same space with the same kind of people, right? And so it's our, it's our, it's our, our job, right? And our great pleasure to help you sort of unpack some of those things, those behaviors, those ways of relating, those patterns, and really take a look a little bit deeper about what may be going on for you. Yeah, that's very, very true. Um, You know, and I I thank you so much for sharing that because I think it's important. People, you know, so much of the stigma is around the fear and fear is typically driven by the unknown. Um, I also think it's important for people who are strong enough, courageous enough and in a safe enough space to be able to be vulnerable, uh, to be vulnerable and share their stories if they can, because it can help other people. Uh, and one of the reasons I do the podcast is to help people in that way, to be vulnerable, to have people share stories, share information, share data that can um, enrich people's lives. And I can tell you that I'm a perfect example of um, how therapy can help and how mental health uh, concerns and such can affect just about anybody. 
Um, anyone who knows me knows that I'm a jovial, joyful, creative person, and that's typically where I sit. Um, but I went through a phase in my life. Uh, grandmother died, uncle died, stepfather died, a relationship that I thought was headed towards marriage ended abruptly without any real closure, even to this day. Um, in the midst of the great recession, unemployed for a significant amount of time at the same time for the first time in my life. I've been working since I was 16. I've never really wor- worried about money. All of these things happened at the same time and for an extended period. Uh, and you know, you feel like you're handling it and you're navigating it all alone. And next thing I know, I'm on the, I'm literally contemplating how I would take my life. If this is living, what's the purpose? If I'm going to be gone, who's going to care? And next thing I know, me of all people, uh, contemplating, uh, taking my own life. And, you know, in that moment, um, you know, it didn't even occur to me that it was that dire until I really started to plan it. Like, okay, I might do this or I might do that, or I wouldn't do this. Um, and you know, Candidly, being honest, um, it wasn't a mental health professional that helped me get out of it. In that particular moment, I was blessed enough to have a co-worker who I hadn't seen in like 20 years uh, reach out on Facebook. And I don't know how, well, I know how it had to be God, but you know, she just reached out and said, I'm so glad you're here. The things that you say and you do, they make a difference. I'm just glad you're in this world. And I just responded to her and said, you have no idea how much I needed to hear that right now. And um, I had been sitting on the sofa that day crying, like incessantly asking God all these questions. Is this life? Well, why is this? And what's the purpose? And why am I here? And does anyone care? And she started to answer every single question that I asked without having any idea anything was wrong, let alone uh, what I was asking. And that's when, um, you know, I don't need a burning bush. (laughs) That was enough for me. I knew that could only be the G.O.D. And that made me turn around and on my sofa and look out the window across the street to First Corinthians. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go over there, not because I need to be saved, but just to say thank you to you. And that started the second phase of my faith journey, which had been paused because of so much church hurt uh, from being a same gender loving person in my life. I share that because then the second piece is I knew based on that, that I don't see myself getting to that point again, right? Allowing myself to get to that mm-hmm. point of, oh my God, I want to take my life. I, I understand mm-hmm. the power of, um, you know, community and I understand the power of seeking professional help. Um, but in a, now in this phase of my life, I'm on by all intents and purposes, happy. I'm thriving. My career is going well and whatever, but I realize there's certain patterns in my life that don't seem to serve me well. And I have a number of friends who are very candid and open about them having therapy and and therapists. And so I decided, even though nothing's wrong, that I would seek a therapist and have someone to talk to and maybe unpack some of these things. And I share this because I want brothers to know that it is a very impactful way to to move. Um, In the first few sessions that I've had, I don't mind sharing that I've unpacked a couple of patterns that I didn't realize were there. We've started to get a sense of the source of those patterns and why I engage in those things and how it serves me well and how it doesn't serve me well. And so, you know, in many ways you can think of this as a, uh, a, an, an experienced professional trained friend who can help you kind of see what's going on around you and think about how you want to make decisions and, and move forward. And, you know, to that end, Dr. Green, I think it might be helpful to people to give people a sense of what does a, a session with a therapist look like? What does it feel like? What's a typical average session? Everybody's different, I know. But just give people a sense of what what it kind of feels like and looks like. Because I don't think many people know. I know I didn't know. I had no idea what to expect. Uh, but it was so much 
less than I thought it was going to be and provided mm-hmm. so much more in terms of benefit than I thought I ever imagined. Mm-hmm. So first, let me say, I thank God that you are still here. I thank God for thank the you. person who reached out to you, right, and obeyed that pull to Christine to Snell is her name, by the way. I want to call hey, her Christine, by her name. I we love you and thank you. Absolutely. Um, and thank you for sharing why you're also going and continuing to go despite being past that sort of crisis moment, right? Um, because it is important and it is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so going to therapy is really about having a conversation with a trained professional who wants to help you understand your story. They want to help understand some of the challenges that you may be facing, um, talk with you through some of the patterns, right? We touched on that. I touched on that earlier. You touched on that just again. Mm-hmm. Um, understand maybe if there's some painful things that you are experiencing that you sort of can't get past, right? Um, can even talk to you about some of your, your fears, right? Um, sometimes it's around communication challenges or around relationship issues. Yeah. Um, so there are really a host of things that could be going on that sort of bring you to, to therapy. Um, and so I would say that first session in therapy is usually about an hour um, because the person is really getting to know you. And so there's some basic information that we need to know about, like, you know, your own personal history. We want, we want to learn a little bit more about your family background. Mm-hmm. We want to understand what brought you to this space in the first place, right? Why now are you seeking support in this way? Have you sought support previously? And how did that go? Um, we also want to be able to do some assessments, right? Assess, you know, if there are any symptoms that are particularly difficult or challenged to sort of challenge to sort of wade through at this point in time. So they may take a look at if you're having any um, symptoms around anxiety, uh, or depression, they may even talk to you about your appetite, your the ways in which you sleep, how that is going, yeah. uh, your ability to concentrate, those kinds of things. Um, and then they're going to ask you, what are some of the things that you'd like to focus on, you know, during during your time together, right? And that also is going to help move the the conversation in the direction that it needs to go go in. So depending on what you say is really how the therapist is able to move forward. And um, so I would say that's probably the first time, right? They're also going to assess you because I don't want to um, get past this either. If you've ever had any thoughts around self-harm, mm-hmm. right? And um, assess for suicide or suicidal ideation uh, to make sure that you're not in any immediate crisis or danger of harming yourself. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And then after that, it's usually 45 minutes on average once a week. Sometimes that's a little bit more depending on, uh, the needs of the individual, but 45 minutes, usually once a week, um, you're coming back and having a conversation about where you are. They're going to give you some tools, um, some strategies to be able to cope. There's going to be some education so that you're understanding the ways in which some of the challenges may be impacting you emotionally, psychologically, and physically. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to give you some um, language, right, um, to help you combat some of those things that may be getting in the way of your ability to uh, optimally function. Yeah, that's exactly right. And well, my therapist is good because he did all those things. <laughs> so that, that, that's good to know. Uh, I, this is going to be utterly unprofessional, but it's my podcast. so I can do what I want. Uh, sure. Dr. Green, how are we looking on time for you? Because we are I, there's so much more I want to talk to you about, but I want to be mindful of your time. You know, we got. 20 or 30 more that's going to put us over our normal time that we but this is almost a two-part episode i mean it really is and there's important (laughs) stuff that's left i just want to get a sense of you know do we have a few extra minutes than we plan for absolutely Uh, 
and you okay. have a few more extra minutes. So All go right. for it, and I will answer Everything that I can to the best of my ability. Let's let's do that because I I mean I say it all the time and I don't know who believes it who doesn't but I really do this. This is not about my edification. I didn't want to host a podcast because I want to be front and center. I really do this for the community of people that I know uh, that can benefit from these conversations. And so to that end, there's some important stuff I still want to cover before we end our conversation. Um, You know, mental health and this pandemic. This pandemic has weighed heavily on all of us in many ways. And we as individuals and as human beings are very diverse. So it's going to affect people in different ways. And I know when the pandemic started, uh, many professionals were predicting that suicides and mental health crises would likely increase exponentially, probably. Uh, however, I read, I've done a lot of research for this conversation, of course, and in particular, I was on a verywellmind.com, uh, which shared some data from the CDC that showed that suicide deaths between 2019 and 2020 actually decreased by about 3% overall, uh, 2% in males, 8% in females. However, suicide deaths for males in three age groups, 10 to 14, uh, 15 to 24, and 25 to 34 years old, increased. And while suicides decreased amongst white and Asian males, deaths increased for black, American, Indian, Alaskan Native, and Hispanic males. Uh, And then Dr. Christine Motier went on to share that experiences such as depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts have been uh, more prevalent during COVID-19 pandemic, particularly for youth and young adults, caregivers, frontline workers, et cetera. Um, But I'm just curious, have you seen this kind of play out in your interactions with your patients? And, And if so, what have been some of the most common mitigating factors that seem to show up uh, and have you noticed any patterns that really kind of um, or, per, or circumstances that kind of lead to these outcomes? Because it's very fascinating to me that suicide actually kind of went down a bit. But for us, as always seems to be the case, it actually got a little bit worse. Yes. So this is such um, a, a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Um, and you know, I'll share a little bit more about some of the things that we're doing right now. But um, we've certainly seen an uptick in suicide here at the Hope Center. Um, we get calls pretty frequently from mm-hmm. both adults and, and youth um, about people actively having suicidal thoughts. Um, and particularly as it relates to our youth, um, we, we are not doing a great job at being able to, to support them um, across the board. So um, I can't remember the date that it came out, um, but the New York Times recently put out an article about what's been happening with uh, teen and youth suicide. Mm-hmm. And uh, the emergency rooms across the country are actually overrun with uh, teens just sort of being in the waiting room because they don't have um, inpatient they don't have enough inpatient beds to be able to treat these teens My and they aren't, they aren't even able to go into specialized care. So what's happening is that, you know, when there is a case um, for crisis and suicide, um, you are essentially, you go to the, the ER to receive support. Mm-hmm. Um, but for our youth, those numbers are increasing drastically. And for our black youth, uh, the numbers are off the charts. Um, there is a article and I want to make sure that I get it right. It's called, excuse me, a report. Um, that has been established by the Emergency Task Force on Black Youth Suicide and Mental Health, and it's called Ring the Alarm, the Crisis of Black Youth Suicide in America. It was uh, uh, released in December of 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, happy to say that uh, two people that I'm quite close to are um, part of that report and are on those committees. Uh, one is Pastor Mike. 
Um, and then also the other person is Dr. Lindsay, who is the incoming dean at my alma mater, which is the NYU Silver School of Social Work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so leading that charge around mental health uh, and trauma in children for across the country or really internationally. really. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've seen an uptick. And um, it's, you know, some of the, the, the things that are really impacting our youth right now are really isolation, stress, uh, financial challenges. And, you know, you think about like, well, what, what, what are, why are kids thinking about financial challenges and financial stress at this point in time? Right? But when we think about what's been happening with regard to the, t- to the pandemic, um, people have been um, financially stressed, right? And so our children are not... Um, as, you know, that's not sort of lost on our children. They're also feeling the impacts of that. Mm-hmm. We have many of our children who are also food insecure, right? Um, and our families are food insecure. So the things that are impacting the family are the things that are impacting us. When we think about um, financial stability, we are often on the verges of poverty, right? And we are on, you know, we have many of our families are low income, uh, especially when we're looking at Black and Latino uh, mm-hmm. families and also Asian families as well. Right. Um, and so the need is so great. I, you know, where my office is, um, there are two food pantries. There's there's the pantry at First Corinthian Baptist Church and there's the the food bank of New York pantry. And those lines are literally down the entire New York City block. So if anyone's ever been to New York City there, you know, the streets are sort of short, but the avenues are quite long. Mm-hmm. And those lines for the food pantry in particular several days a week are extremely long and they're down the entire block. And you would think that, you know, well, maybe someone, you may think, well, maybe it's a particular kind of person that may be there. Well, no, their old age range is there. There are parents with their children sometimes on these lines. Um, And so when we're thinking about the things that most impact uh, families of color, those things are heavily impacting our children. Also, we want to think about bullying um, and then, uh, the isolation and feeling disconnected, yeah. right? And I and I dare to say that um, you know we're sort of quasi coming out of the pandemic, but we're the 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 things that we've experienced as a nation are going to continue to reverberate for many many years. I think with regard to to um, our emotional and, and mental well being, and I think that we're just starting to see some of these things. You know, I, I spoke with a friend of mine who's a teacher the other day, and she stopped me and she said, "I just want to." just say, you know, thank you for what you're doing. She's like, but, you know, I don't even feel like I'm able to teach right now, that I'm literally just here getting through the day because our kids are hurting, they are depressed, um, they are violent, they are angry, and I don't know how to help them. Yeah. And she's been a teacher for over 20 years, right? Um, I'm hearing we're, that. We're figuring this out together. Yeah, I'm hearing that from a lot of educators and it, it's it, it's heartbreaking, but I think it's a sign of our society that looks in many ways like it's collapsing. I mean, I'm in the business of hope, so I've got to hold on to that yeah. and find ways to encourage it. Absolutely. But but I can't ignore the signs all around us. Um, our political discourse is toxic and, and self-defeating yeah. um, and all the economic Racial indicators. Violence. Yeah. And all the economic indicators you talk, talked about are very real. And, you know, the other thing that, you know, you um, you, you mentioned um, and I would extrapolate on is if parents are dealing with that kind of economic insecurity and the stress of trying to put food on the table and keep that roof over their head and not become homeless, um, you know, perhaps not knowingly, perhaps uh, without wanting to do it, they're lashing out and taking that stress and those concerns out on their children. And, I, you know, I see it. Mm-hmm. 
all the time. I don't think it's a, a racial thing. Um, it's not a black thing, a Latino thing. It's it's everybody. If you're stressed uh, and you're really, really frustrated with your life and the world and everything around you, it's difficult for that not to spill over in some ways to how you deal with your children. Uh, and then you got some of, you know, what I think is unfortunately a little traditional in the terms of that. You know, I've watched people who clearly didn't have a relationship with their uh, uh, their spouse or the par- child's other parent, and they're taking that out on the children. I've seen people talk to their children. I mean, I'm hearing people talking. I turn around to see if she's cursing out her boyfriend, and she's actually talking to her eight-year-old son, who's and clearly mad at his father. But And so all those things definitely impact our children in, in very meaningful ways. And I don't say those things to demonize parents because they're human beings and they're under their own stress and they're breaking. But yeah. We've got to find ways to, to be there for each other and to heal each other. And um, with teens, too, I think social connectivity is probably even I mean, social connectivity is critical for all human beings. It's proven right. that we essentially start to wither and die if we don't have social connectivity. But Absolutely. that's heightened in kids, I would imagine. Right. Yeah. Right. Because when we think about um, what's significant in adolescence, even if you think back to to your own time as a teenager, right? What is the most important, what was the most important thing for you at that time? Being able to hang out with your friends, right? So our friendships become really the, the, the most important relationships at that time as they continue to develop socially and emotionally, right? Um, their brains are still developing, their hormones are all over the place, right? They're learning how to navigate the world, they're learning how to navigate relationships, um, in various ways, right? But our French, their friendship circles, our friendship circles at that point in time are really so significant. And if they aren't able to do that, um, you know, in person, it really impacts them, right? And so when they're, you know, focused on devices, right? I tell people all the time, um, if you you can't read someone's emotional temperature um, on a device, right? right? So sometimes when you think about um, being able to have conversations in person, right? Body language is so important. Mm-hmm. Tone of voice is so important. And those are things that you can't read digitally, no. right? And so the capacity to be able to do that actually diminishes. And so when we're wondering, like, why are they doing these, these things without consequence? Well, it's because they don't know how to read the other person. They're not clear. They're not aware that they, you know, harm someone with their words or um, don't have the ability to read body language. So they're not sure when someone else is feeling uncomfortable, right? So much happens in person in that energy space that they're not getting, or they've been deprived of for almost two years. Um, Doing those significant growth spurts and those significant times when they're supposed to be learning how to do that. So there we are. Um, And I wanted to just, you know, you, you said you had to have hope, right? And, And it's our role, right? As, as uh, people in the helping profession, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and what I say to folks all the time, it's our job to hold hope when other people don't have it. Yeah. Right? That's part of our role to be yeah. able to do that. Um, and so we have to be creative in ways that really speak to responding to the needs of our community, to the needs of our children, to the needs of our parents and families. Um, and to that end, the Hope Center um, has created the Thrive Program which is a response to teen suicide. Yes. Um, and so I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to support our youth um, and support our parents um, and making sure that they have some great tools and being able to manage their stress and cope with the daily challenges of living and be able to navigate those spaces. Um, so we have a, a 12-week, um, a 12 
yeah, 12 week session program that we created um, in partnership with our sponsorship from Nike's Black Community Commitment to be able to serve our Black youth. And we're really proud of the work that we're doing thus far. Um, and we love our teens. They, I tell people they're a tough crowd, but I'll take it. And I'm happy to see there's beautiful, smart, shining faces when they walk into the to the room every Wednesday. So that's that's beautiful. Um, you know, something else that came up in the research I was doing uh, that kind of fascinated me. You know, I know, you know, the pandemic has been horrific in so many ways. Uh, but in some ways, it's kind of lessened the stress in certain people for certain situations. Children no longer at school with their bullies. Uh, employees are no longer working, forced to work toxic uh, hours with coworkers that they don't like. Uh, people who hated their jobs suddenly had a reason to stop working. And many of them are not going back to those same jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the other lifestyle changes um, like those, like, you know, staying and being closer to family members and friends and their networks uh, with more time around the house. Some people started, some people actually started eating healthier. You know, there's been some mm-hmm. positive things and I, you know, these lifestyle changes like these are kind of protective of factors against suicide. It's uh, been shown. Um, you know, my question is how do we get people and I get it, society's a challenge here, but how do we get people to kind of lean into some of these protective factors and be proactive about our mental health, you know, to spend more time with family and loved ones, to lean into the things that, that bring us joy, uh, because, you know, people, and I was reading the reports, it was also sharing that mental illness is not necessarily or always a cause for suicide. That suicides quite often happen within the complete absence of mental illness. And that shocked me. So that said to me that something about this connectivity of us as human beings and leaning into joy and connectivity is on some level must be a factor in that. Can you unpack some of that for me with your professional background or what you've seen? Sure. So one I, one thing I want to say is yes, right? The, the pandemic has definitely given us some 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 lessons that we needed to learn in, in, a, in, in an effort to be flexible, right, with ourselves and lessen some of the stress. Um, but I also want to be very careful about that, too, because not being in the workplace and not being at school has also cost us some things, too. Right. right. It's really around that. It's a give and a take. Um, sure. Um, so our research um, with our Haven Connect team that is uh, in partnership with our folks out of um, George Washington University. So shout out to Dr. Sherry Mollock, who is a pastor and a clinical psychologist and has been working with me. That's her research team working with me oh, we as we it. implement this suicide prevention program for teens. Um, we basically research tells us that there are four things that are important. Um, when it comes to sort of suicide prevention and to promote really good mental health, right? Mm -hmm. So that is kinship, that is purpose, guidance, and balance. I'm going to say that again. Kinship, 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 purpose, Mm -hmm. guidance, and balance, right? So kinship is really about that connectivity piece that you talked about that is super important for all of us, mm-hmm. right? Our purpose is like, well, what do we, what's meaningful for us in the world? Who, who are we, right? And what gives us um, joy and enthusiasm for getting up and going out and doing something? Else? Right. Um, that guidance um, is how do we relate to other people who help guide us along the journey of life? Um, and then balance is making sure that, you know, we are able to infuse things that give us meaning, things that give us joy, um, things that things that give us rest in our life. Um, and so, if we're 
thinking about how do we incorporate and ensure that these four pillars are present for us. Those are really the protective factors that allow us to, to sort of, you know, have optimal wellness. Right. And those things, sometimes those things take some tweaking and figuring out because we might be really great in one area um, and not doing so well in others. Right. So it's really taking a look at those four areas and saying, okay, so where, where am I doing well? Um, and what are the things that I, that I would like to get a little bit better at? Or what are the things that I would like to um, increase or support or do more of? That's, so that, that, that's what I would say in a nutshell. That's fascinating. Uh, you know, I had a conversation recently with Dr. Sean Jenright, who's a sociologist, and he's amazing. And one of the things that came up in the conversation that is that as a people of color, uh, and people who are on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale suffer from many disparities. You know, we know about the health disparities. We know about the racism and the systemic racism and oppression in terms of jobs and such. Uh, but there's also a rest disparity that we don't necessarily get the quality of sleep that others get. We don't necessarily have, whether it's because of finance or time or other resources, we don't get the uh, the uh, relaxation in terms of going on vacations and playing and dreaming and all the things that really speak to being a full human being. And, you know, when you talked about balance and you mentioned that, that stood out to me. Well, one of the factors in many ways is quite often out of people's control or at least feels like it is. And so you got to be mindful of it at the very least in order to start to fight, to claw back uh, some of that space for yourself. Have you seen, you know, in your, in your innovators that you're working with that many people are suffering from a lack of the ability to just rest, to just get a quality night of sleep or go on a vacation or spend time with their family? Absolutely. Right. And so we definitely see that with people's high levels of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Right. So whether it's something related to to work, um, some people's ability to be able to sort of turn that part of their their mind off. um, They are constantly thinking about the next thing. Right. But also there's something about our communities where um, we've been sort of conditioned uh, to think that we don't deserve it, right? That we don't deserve rest and relaxation. And therefore, we don't prioritize it like some other cultures may prioritize mm-hmm. it, right? Um, and then we also think about it in terms of like what we're able to afford. You know, my niece said something funny to me the, the other week, um, actually last weekend. And so she said, I'm moving to Miami, Florida. And I said, Oh, really? Well, when did you decide this? She's like, I decided yesterday. I said, oh, okay. Well, what prompted this decision? She said, I deserve rest and to live in Black girl luxury. And I said, you know what? I am all about this decision. (laughs) (laughs) She said, I want to be near the water. I want to be in warm weather. I want to relax. I want to sort of take it out. And she said, you know, she's a Harlem girl. She's like, I not that I don't love Harlem or anything. She's like, but I'm just sort of tired. And she's 24. Five, right? Well, she'll be 25 in October. But she said, you know, I feel like I've been working and like playing catch up and like I really don't have time to like enjoy some of the things that I want to enjoy. And I was just so proud to hear her say that, um, recognizing it early. She's like, you know, you always say things like, you know, take care of yourself and choose you first. She's like, and that's exactly what I'm doing, right? She's spot um, on. She's spot on. Not to, sorry to interrupt I you. Love it. She's spot on. Uh, I mean, I honestly, at this point in my life, I mean, between the things that I've lived personally, the things that I read, the things that I watch, my God, the nap, the nap ministry on Instagram, I realized the revolution 
starts with a nap. It just does. Like you have to take care of yourself. We deserve rest and relaxation as much as anyone. Um, I think there's this notion that's been placed in us. We've been brainwashed by these oppressive systems that to rest is to be lazy, that we don't have value if we're taking time off to hell with that. I mean, enough's enough. I can't remember where where I read this quote, but it was like, black people have been called lazy ever since we started working for free. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a big source of the health disparities in this country and, and on why we suffer from the diseases. But we were, you know, everyone wants to point out our diets, which quite often are a consequence of culture and food deserts. But then also, you know, we've been worked like mules to death, even when we're not doing it for free. We're still forced not only to do it in these, you know, high risk, low wage jobs, uh, but also this guilt that's been programmed into us about taking care of self and, and putting that at least on equal footing with producing for capitalism and producing to make somebody else rich. Enough's enough. Absolutely. Right. And I'll just um, say this one thing. There's a term um, that I learned about several years ago, and it's called weathering. Mm. Right. And it's about the impact of stress and oppression on our on our bodies and in our overall health. Right. And the notion that essentially we get worn out and worn down yeah. by this. Um, and I forget the name of this sister's name, uh, Dr. Arlene Geronimus, if I'm not mistaken, um, a sister out of the University of Michigan who sort of coined this term back in back in the 90s. Um, but there's an amazing article about her and her work and this notion of weathering. And it makes so much sense, right? It, it gives, I appreciate it because it gives us language and understanding about how this, <clears throat> you know, sort of work nonstop stress and oppression has really impacted us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, about the quality of our wellness goes down, right? I tell folks, you know, when we, when, you know, Black folks from other countries, they do well. The minute that they get here and they've been here for a few years, they have all sorts of challenges, right? So right. it's not about us. It's about the environments that yeah right we're not necessarily preconditioned to certain things it's the environment that we live in that has harmed us and that has weathered us so and you know in that environment the most toxic thing about that environment always and definitely at this point in our history is people trying to deny that the environment exists and act like we're and i'm going to use an absolutely ridiculous term on purpose act like we're crazy for calling out a thing that we know exists but they don't. And now they're literally trying to legislate away the ability to talk about and tell the truth. It's absolutely ridiculous, but it's absolutely yeah. a source of our pain. Um, one other big thing I want to touch on before before we uh, start to wind this down is is this. And I'm going to read this um, because I want to share this with you and get your thoughts on it. Uh, spiritual director and uh, thought leader Eckhart Tolle uh, studied psychology along with philosophy and literature, but I want to be clear, he is not a psychologist. Um, but nonetheless, uh, his writing is kind of fascinating to me, and um, he introduced this concept of the pain body, uh, and he defines it as an accumulation of painful life experience uh, that was not fully faced and accepted in the moment that it arose. Uh, it leaves behind an energy form of emotional pain, and it comes together with other energy forms uh, from other instances so that after some years you have what he calls a pain body or an energy kind of entity that exists of a you know old emotion and that pain body can remain active or or it can become active or it can remain 
remain dormant. And in this way, and many more, it's kind of like a virus. It lies dormant until something internal, like a negative thought, or external, like you're late for a flight or somebody uh, uh, says something racist to you or whatever, triggers the pain body and then it erupts. Uh, Then it takes over the mind and we identify with the pain body in a very real way. We think as it thinks. Uh, For example, uh, the pain body makes it easy for us to believe things like I'm a loser when there's no evidence that says that, Uh, that everybody hates me because I'm trans or gay or black or white. Although you may have had experiences, you don't have evidence that everybody hates you, but that becomes this reality you kind of exist in, right? And so it says that, you know, against all reason, it starts to make um, all these things. It, it Because it's a energy, it's alive. It wants to feed on that kind of energy to perpetuate its own existence. So against all reason, it starts to look for things to make it mad, to make it sad, to make it scared, to keep itself activated and kind of in control of, you know, what you're doing in your body. Uh, And, you know, there could be any number of things. You could instigate a fight with a spouse or coworker, or it will passively aggressively um, have you provoke a fight with a boss or something. Um, Or in some recent examples, which I think may be interesting examples of this, when this Buffalo shooting happened, uh, obviously for African-Americans, that's going to trigger us in many obvious ways. Uh, that are really, you know, valid ways. Right. But it also can trigger us in other ways. Like I saw somebody attacking Amy Schumer for not reacting publicly to the Buffalo shooting the way she did to the Will Smith slapping incident. And while I understand where they were going two are obviously very kind of different, but I feel like that person and our collective pain bodies might have been activated in a way that says you react to these things, but you're not reacting to that. And, you know, it just perpetuates itself. My question around that and the reason I share that is I want to know that from uh, your your place as a educated and trained professional, uh, how on is he? Is there a traditional kind of terminology for this? Is this something that you see as real? It feels real, feels valid to me, but I'm very curious about your thoughts about it. And if indeed it exists, you know, how do we kind of combat that and and to beat that back? Yeah, so... um you know, it's sort of a a, a cognitive behavioral sort of stance Mm -hmm. Um, and that, you know, our environment is going to reinforce the things that we are actually thinking about. So if I think I'm going to have a bad day, then I'm going to have a bad day and the environment is going, and I'm going to scan the environment for things that are going to reinforce the fact that I'm having a bad day, Mm -hmm. right? Or to the example that you use, you know, I'm a bad person. Well, the environment, if that's the notion that's in my mind, if I'm thinking that, then I'm going to scan the environment and have all of these interactions that are going to reinforce that even if I don't think I'm a bad person, these other people think that I'm a bad person. And it's because I'm black, if that is the sort of mantra that you're going with, right? And so oftentimes as clinicians, one of the things that we do, particularly as it relates to cognitive behavioral therapy, is that we ask people to think about, um, you know, to to sort of be... uh, to express the thing that is sort of at the forefront and we do some reframing around the thinking. And often we think about, we ask the question, well, what is the evidence of that? Right. Mm. And we do some sort of unpacking. Well, is this really happening? Is it true? And if it's true, is it true all the time? Right. Um, So we sort of, you know, sort of peel back the layers of what may be happening and really get to the root of where that voice in our head came from, where those notions came from. Sometimes they don't belong to us at all. And sometimes they're the language of other people that we've adopted and internalized. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So we want to get to that. We want to, and I'm doing like this because I'm like, that's sort of where the meat of the work is, right? We start getting into into that and, and understanding and doing some unpacking. Um, the other thing that it, that that um, what you said brings up for me is um, this this piece around the body, right? Which I think is important to know, especially in people of color, um, because oftentimes traditional tools that we use to assess, you know, people's anxiety or depression. I'm going to stick with depression for one second. Mm-hmm. Um, often doesn't come up, right? Um, and so for asking these questions about people, whether or not they're depressed, particularly if we're just talking about black, black folks for a second, okay. um, the tools and the surveys sometimes don't necessarily pick up on the depression, the way in which we're asking the questions. And what we found, though, is that if we start to ask people about their physical pain, that we understand that what we call the body keeps the score. And the body tells us the truth around perhaps where our pain and our trauma is trapped. And that is within the, within the body, right? Um, and so I just wanted to lift that up for That's a moment profound. because I think it's important to understand that for us, a lot of times we have what we call somatic symptoms that are really impacting our ability to function well, but they're connected to our mental health state. I, so. I'm thinking about my parents my grandparents and even myself now where it's just like, Ooh, this, this shoulder and people they touch it. And they're like, why is that so tight? And sometimes, yeah, it's maybe I'm not sitting right at my desk or whatever, but often, often it's connected directly to stress, to anxiety, to things that I've been witnessing and seeing in the news and the 24 hour freaking news cycle. I mean, I turn the news off at this point. I don't watch it uh, for those reasons. And, you know, that leads me to another question that I wasn't going to ask, but I'm going to get into it real quick is, you know, we've seen so much racial violence and definitely these police murders. So I'm going to call them what they are. uh, And then some of the unfortunate accidents. And we have this new habit of sharing these things on social media and watching them literally 50, 60, a hundred times. Everybody thinks they're freaking CNN. Now everybody can't wait to share the latest disaster. And while I understand it's important to get it out so that people, the powers that be can't cover it up, there has to be a significant mental price for ingesting that kind of trauma on a regular basis. A, is that true? And B, how do you suggest we kind of avoid doing that and moving away from that? Because that's inflicting, I think, very significant harm on each and every one of us every time it happens. Absolutely. Um, and it and it desensitizes us mm-hmm. to black pain. Right. It's interesting. Um, and I don't you know, this is just sort of my own personal opinion that um you know, oftentimes when, when 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 black bodies are harmed, that the images get played over and over and over again, and it also it it, it sort of dulls us and numbs us to the to the horrificness or the horror of actually seeing that. And I don't get I don't I don't feel like that happens to our white counterparts, right? Mm. Their bodies aren't aren't shown. Um, in the same way and harmed in the same way visually over and over and over again. And so I have to believe that there's something that happens on purpose with us sharing and showing showing these images over and over again, right? And it does. It gets into our psyche. It harms us. Um, You know, people have, I've had people 
report to me that they've had nightmares, mm-hmm. right? It certainly increases our levels of anxiety and depression. And sometimes you don't even know it because it feels like you're desensitized to it. And then think about what you, what sort of happens in the mind of other, in the mind of our young people, in the minds of our young people, when they feel like um, you can watch that and you, and it has no impact on you. And so then I think about, well, when they're, when someone does perpetuate violence, um, perhaps they're not able to process it in the same way, psychologically, in the way that they're inflicting harm because they are desensitized. I mean, that's sort of where I go with it Mm -hmm. um, when I hear these kinds of things, but it's not good for us. Um, and And it certainly harms us and we have to figure out ways to protect ourselves. You know, I tell people all the time, we have to protect you know, you talk about protecting what goes into your body. Someone's really fit, right? Um, you've got to protect what comes, what you ingest. You've got to protect not only what you um, what you eat, but what you see and what you hear. Mm-hmm. The same way in which you're trying to protect and stay fit in, in, you know, in your body, stay fit in your mind, stay fit in your spirit yeah. and be, you know, have some boundaries around what you're, what you, what you see. Um, and that's why I think it's so, so important to turn the news off. Um, don't watch it every day. Be careful about what you what you allow your children to see and watch. Um, you know, put timings on things if you can, so that you give yourself some boundaries and some parameters and some guardrails around. You know what what you're taking in. Yeah, really important point that you bring up there. And I thank you for sharing what you just shared because you you, you transitioned really <laughs> smoothly right into my last piece of this is how do we provide some hope and some proactive care? And, and, and I'm glad you, you literally answered a question I was going to ask you about. We take care of our bodies proactively. How do we take care of our minds? So thank you uh, for speaking to that. And, you know, I mean, and I think that goes beyond ingesting um, the negative uh, and violent uh, things we see on the news or, uh, you know, but, the, you know, in movies, when you think about it, and I was talking to my partner about this the other day. I was like, God, we live in a hunger game, super violent culture because even the things that feel kind of um, innocent or whatever, like I love Marvel movies. I like Star Wars and whatever. They're mm-hmm. constantly fighting and killing and destroying things like everything is conflict and violence in our entertainment. It's ridiculous. And it's become so normal that you don't even see it in plain sight, but it's right there. I mean, I watched mm-hmm. Doctor Strange and I was like, for God's sake, how many people died in this movie? And we're just like, oh, we're cheering and we're cheering them, ripping somebody apart. I mean, it's nuts. And then the same thing in our music. And I want young people who are listening and I do have young listeners. Um, I'm not that old guy that doesn't like your music. I like all kinds of stuff. As a matter of fact, Kendrick Lamar is on repeat in my iPod right now. Um, because he said some profound things. He's not perfect. He's human. He's flawed, but he's saying some interesting things. But even with music, I I listen to people and it's really profound when you can't hear what they're listening to, but you can just hear them saying the words um, as they're listening in their headphones. The programming that we are giving ourselves about how not to care about each other, how not to love each other. We live in essentially a loveless society. When I, th- I hear young people talking about their girl or their guy or whatever, I mean, I I can count on one hand, not using all my fingers, the numbers of times I've heard anything that's about love or romance or care. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's fetishizing violently quite often. It's commodifying uh, each other 
constantly. I mean, we're indoctrinated into cap- capitalism like I never thought we would be. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be mindful of how much of that stuff you ingest, too, because at some point you just don't even believe love is a concept because all you're hearing is the opposite of that. I mean, for God's sake, That's there's right. a song I heard is in No Love. Like, wait, what? And who wants that? Like, what world? What world do you want to live in with no love? Like, are you kidding me right now? Yeah. But you know, our young people are speaking the truth of what they're living and what they're seeing, and so that's why I don't damn them for it. But I do call, you know, this is an emergency. Like, listen to the culture is telling you what we've put into their hearts and minds, and it is not good. And we've got to challenge it, right? And it's up to us to challenge it. It's up to us to expand their understandings of what these these concepts mean and, you know, and break down those lyrics. Get them thinking about what those lyrics actually mean and what they do. How do those lyrics shift your mood? Yeah. Right? And how does that sentiment show up in your life? Does that make you feel yeah. good? Does that make you have a good day to be treated like that and to treat other people like that? Like a it's tough, but we, and most importantly, we can talk all we want, but we have to show examples of how the opposite makes a difference, how the opposite makes you feel, how the opposite shows up in the world. And I know for me personally, I, I try to do that. There's a older gentleman yesterday I saw hailing a, a cab and he had a walker that couldn't fold up fully. He's trying to get into the cab and I went over to help him. The cab driver was being unloving. And so I was like, just leave, just get the heck out of here. I'll take care of it. I'll get another cab for him. I help him get it. And the man looked at me like I was an alien. He couldn't believe that I showed that much care and concern for an absolute and complete stranger. But to me, your faith means you're a disciple of Jesus, which means you're going to love others as you love yourself and you move that way in the world. And so all these people talk all this stuff about being Christians, but show up as anything but Christians. I don't get it, but I think, again, us being that kind of example makes a difference because then I turned around and I saw like these two boys who were like 15, 16 years old looking and one of them looked at me and he's like, yo, that was cool, man. I'm like, that's how we all make it through together. You know what I mean? And it just, it warmed my heart to know. I mean, it was great that the man felt good and he was comfortable and, and, and appreciative of me for helping him, but it was more impactful for me to see those two young men see that example and perhaps they'd walk away and and be that and do that for somebody else you know before we let you go um this the the season three theme of the podcast right is hope healing and love and i am interested in your thoughts about the how the hope center specifically uh, and therapists and mental health professionals generally can aid people in rediscovering hope as a tool for healing Hmm. How do we, how do we, how do I say that? Um, it is holding this small piece of love and optimism in the middle of your heart and allowing that to blossom, um, just a little bit every single day, Mm -hmm. um, and finding small ways to share that, right? Um, whether it's in a touch, whether it's in a look, whether it's in a note or a text message, but sharing that small bit of optimism and love every single day contributes to our ability to hope mm-hmm. every single day. That's, that's great, Dr. And, you know, last thing for you, um, I've asked many people this uh, question this, this season, and I want to ask you, because I think walking around wounded, 
is really a big part of what's going on in the world. We're so unaware that we're wounded, that we're then taking that pain and sharing it and inflicting it on others. I'm curious for you personally, because vulnerability is so important. Can you share with us something that wounded you? Um, Share how that thing that wounded you kind of inhibited your access to joy for however long that it did. And then what you did to seek healing or are doing to seek healing if that thing still exists. Because I think it's important for people to understand you get these wounds, you don't deal with them, you're walking around with them. Then those wounds and the fear associated with them kind of inhibit your access to joy, your ability to take the risks that could lead you to joy. And there's healing out there. Find the healing and, and make that work for you so you can reconnect with your access to joy. So I'm curious, what's wounded you? How did that thing inhibit your access to joy? And what have you done or are doing to heal from that wound? Okay, so um, in transparency, so I grew up, uh, both of my parents are deceased. And I grew up in a essentially a single parent household. And early on in my youth, um, both of my parents were drug addicted, both of them. Um, and I thank God that by the time I got to high school, that they no longer were, were wrestling with the addiction. But those were some things that were, you know, almost stole my joy early on. And because of that, I ended up focusing very heavily on on education and sort of not really giving myself room to for play, if you will. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So I I I was a very serious kid. I mean, I talked a lot. Uh, but a very serious kid, because for me, it was like life is very serious. And there were so many things that were so unknown and so many things that were not constant and consistent. Mm-hmm. And so I think the so that sort of inhibited my joy, my joy early on. Um, but I, I've been able to repair my relationships with both of my parents before they got their wings and exited um, this universe that's good and so knowing that i was able to repair my relationship with them both and really be able to experience the fullness of the love that they had for me as their child and their other children um my siblings and i take that so very seriously not having our parents right and so we've learned how to sort of lean on one another and cultivate and support one another and that's the thing that gives me joy so I have the pleasure of being both a big sister and a little sister. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a middle kid, I get to have the best of both worlds and really benefit from being able to be a support and a guide to my younger siblings and then being the beneficiary of guidance and kinship and love as being a little sister. Um, I so love I it. Say, you know, I love it. That's a fan. Fantastic answer. I knew you had it in you. I knew. <laughs> I, I knew. And you, I, I mean, you are one big ball of hope and, and healing and knowledge and wisdom and care. And I really appreciate all the work you do, the work that the Hope Center does, the work that Pastor Mike has done. And I thank you for sharing your time with us today. I think this conversation is an important one for people. And I just want to lift you up uh, in, in prayer and in support and know that uh, I will be there when you need me. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm not sure when this episode is going to air, but we're going to be doing our healing conversation. So that's one way I'm giving back and, and supporting you and your Absolutely. work. 
Um, but thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything uh, you want to share with folks uh, if they're in the Harlem area about how to access uh, the Hope Center and uh, for other faith leaders that may hear this? Um, you know, are you and or Pastor Mike available to talk to them about this model and, and how they can look to maybe do something in their own cities? Yes. So I am and Pastor Mike as well. We are open to sharing uh, the work of the Hope Center, sharing the model of the Hope Center in hopes that we can replicate what this looks like all over the world, to be honest with you. Um, and you can access the information to the Hope Center by going to hopecenterharlem.org. Again, that is hopecenterharlem.org. Uh, click on that link to email me and I will be sure to get right back to you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lena L. Green. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to seeing you real soon. Like I'll walk down the street and see you in a few. <laughs> All right, be well. Dr. Lena Green, ladies and gentlemen, and them and they, because we cannot forget our trans brothers and sisters. All right, you guys, uh, Dr. Lena Green, thank you. Dr. Lena Green, you know, just as we protect, nurture, and value our appearance and physical well-being, we must also do the same with our mental health. Dr. Lena Green has answered the call to use her love of people, and her education and training to be an advocate for those who can't advocate for self, to be a practitioner who cares for those in need of treatment and support, and to serve as a professor who is training the next generation of therapists, social workers, and mental health professionals who will care for us all as we move forward in this thing called life. I urge each and every one of us to be mindful of the content that we consume and to protect our mental well-being at all costs. In the very same way that we are what we eat, we are also the content that we consume and the manifestation of our dreams. What we dream is often a result of what we consume, the news we watch, the music we listen to, the people we take advice from, the trauma in our families and communities, and finally, the lack of rest and relaxation that is so prevalent in our society. We're all worked to the bone by capitalism without any regard for the very human need for time to rest, to enjoy recreation, and most of all, to connect with those who we love and those who we work aside alongside to build the beloved community. Let's take our mental health seriously. Don't take it for granted. Fill our hearts and minds with hope, positivity, possibility, and the experiences that nurture and feed us in an attempt to balance out the challenges and stressors that are inherent in our modern lives. Remember that in the beginning is the word, the words we think, the words we speak, the words that move us to action are also the words that create the reality in which we live. If we want to build a beloved community and a more loving and beautiful world, it begins with our mental health and the thoughts and words that emerge from that health. In the beginning is the word. What is the word that sits in the center of our being? If that word isn't positive, isn't affirming, isn't life-giving, isn't loving, then what comes forth from inside us will reflect that lack of love and lack of peace. We all need help sometimes. We all can benefit from a professional listener who can give us the language to reflect upon 
and to recontextualize our experiences and to help us to be aware of what we are thinking, being, and doing in the moment. Together, we can build a more joyful life for ourselves and each other. And it all starts with the conversations that each of us are having with self. Make that conversation a healthy and life-giving one. And watch the journey to healing and wholeness and the transformation begin. Well, y'all, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Lena Green. I hope you got some helpful tips and information that can help you along your journey to wholeness, to healing, and to mental well-being. Don't forget to listen to us every week. You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. Please follow us on social media. Nothing to lose but yourself on Instagram and on Twitter. And of course, follow me, Ricky Day, on Instagram and on Twitter as well. Please have an amazing and a wonderful day wherever you are. Be mindful of what you allow yourself to consume in terms of content and do everything you can to rest to spend time with family, to do those important things that make you happy and bring you joy. Again, my name is Ricky Day. This is nothing to lose but yourself. I look forward to talking to you and building community with you and seeing you again next week. Until then, be well, be blessed, be beautiful, and be loved. I love you.